world of plenty, it is unthinkable that hundreds of millions go to bed each night hungry. Refugees who are now arriving at the pace of 4,000 per day. We have walked the streets, saw the damaged building, visit the injured and the homeless. If ever we need proof that what happens on the other side of the world matters, we need only look at the global pandemic that is gripping all of us, revealing to us that we are all going through the same storm. We're just in different boats. COVID-19 is also teaching us that we are truly connected, a global village. Take a trip with us around the world as context goes global to see what others are doing amid wars, famine, even genocide while also struggling through the grim realities of a coronavirus that does not discriminate. Today on Context, join us for ways to reach out and help our sisters and brothers on the other side of the world. Whenever we hear about the country Armenia, the word genocide often echoes in many people's minds, but many of us still do not know that although the killing of Armenian Christians happened back in 1915, history is repeating itself today in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The situation is so serious, Armenians are burning their own homes instead of surrendering, surrendering them. But our first guest is an Armenian journalist and is able to shed some light on this Armenian uh, conflict. She is live from Amman, Jordan. Thank you so much, Aline, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So Aline, the situation in Armenia is devastating. Although COVID and elections have taken center stage globally, um, can you give us an idea of what the situation in Armenia is like right now? Well, this, this conflict has, you know, suddenly burst out into a full, like, war for the past 44 days since uh, started on September 27 and ending on November 9. And during this war, uh, 150,000 Armenians were affected. Some of them lost everything they have in their cities and towns, and some of them managed to uh, uh, take the bus ride to Armenia, which is a very, very long way. It's about 10 to 12 hours uh, by bus or car, and that's how they escaped the shelling. Uh, some of them, of course, stayed in their towns and villages, and um, many kids and moms died in a hospital in a maternity ward that was shelled, and uh, some of them refused to just re leave. They said, we will not leave our towns, we will not leave our churches, and we will stay here to defend them. So it's a very dire situation for the ones who have left and winter has started. Right. And a church has also been attacked, we hear? Yes. In the city of Shushi, uh, there was a big uh, church that we have there built about 110 years ago that was shelled and it completely, the dome was completely destroyed. Mm. And uh, that's the ironic thing about it, that uh, this church is actually older than Azerbaijan itself, because Azerbaijan became a country in 1918 only. Right. While Armenian churches and monasteries, some of them date back to the fourth and fifth century after Christ. So it's like um, people are having to leave like their heritage behind, not just their homes. Mm. And, and why is November 9th considered a sad day for Armenians around the world? Well, as you mentioned, the Armenians suffered the genocide in 1915, and they lost uh, nine-tenths of their historic homeland at the time. 
So the ones who were lucky just walked, you know, through the Arabian deserts and they, they reached the Middle East and the later on they emigrated to other countries. So, so now they seem to be losing yet another part of their homeland. I mean, it's not as if that was enough. Now we have this uh, conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, which the Armenians call, call Artsakh. And, uh, and there were Armenians in Nakhichevan as well, which is also now part of Azerbaijan. I mean, it was like a political map which was redrawn in 1921. And that's how the Azeris got control of Nagorno-Karabakh and Nakhichevan. I mean, anyone who looks at the map would see that Nakhichevan is not even connected to Azerbaijan, and it's part of it. So Armenians, for Armenians, these are ancestral homelands. Uh, actually, in Karabakh, we have the first Armenian Armenian school was established there after the Alf Armenian alphabet was, you know, written down uh, in 406 AD. So you're talking about people who have built 4,000 monasteries, churches, cathedrals, and castles in Karabakh. Right. And yet, you know, the Azeris have the audacity to claim that this is their land. So it's sad that the people are having to leave their homes again. They're even carrying church bells, you know, they you cannot really carry them. And uh, one, one uh, bishop has said, I will not leave. I will either take these with me because they're 800 years old, or I'm going to stay here and defend them and probably die. Wow. So, um, so Aline, what, yeah. the, what does the future hold for Armenians? And how do you think reconciliation can be possible? Well, unfortunately, the peace deal, well, it wasn't a peace deal, this deal that was struck by the Russians and they made the Armenians sign and like the majority of Armenians outside of Armenia, of course, everybody is against these uh, latest agreements. And uh, in Armenia proper, 17 political parties are up against one, the prime minister's party. And they have asked him to uh, relinquish, uh, not, I mean, let go of the ceasefire, but the, some of the terms are inagreeable to Armenians because they even give Turkey a landline through Nakhichevan and through Armenia to Azerbaijan. And this is a big, a big problem for Armenians. So as long as, you know, uh, peace is not uh, based on any fair deal, I do not see the peace continuing. And uh, unfortunately, we don't want to see another war, of course, because all those young lives were lost. Right. Most of the soldiers were 20, 21 year olds, volunteers, you know. You know, this conflict is not getting a lot of media exposure here in Canada. What's your message for us and how can we help? I think the thing the world needs to do is recognize the area that's called Nagorno-Karabakh or whatever is left of it after this final, you know, redrawing of the map again uh, on November 9th, to recognize it as Armenian land, e either give them self-autonomy or give the people self-determination as per UN, you know, rules and regulations, uh, or just, you know, uh, if the people want to be part of Armenia, they would vote for it in a referendum later on. But the, the actual final status of the area has not been decided. Mm. And since it's that way, we will see another war again, because after the Russian peacekeepers leave in five years, or maybe before or after, another war will start again. Okay. Aline Banayan, uh, freelance journalist, joining us from Amman, Jordan. Thank you again for your insights today. Thank you. We thought as Lebanese, we are resilient. But this time, we cannot be resilient because we are tired. However, we always remember, we are the children of hope. We are the children of resurrection. 
and every time he holds us up and give us strength to continue this journey. We are the children of hope. On August 4th this past summer, the port of Beirut was hit by an explosion so massive it leveled the city's entire downtown, killed over 200 people and injured another 6,500. The blast caused $15 billion U.S. in property damage and has left an estimated 300,000 people homeless. All this amid the global pandemic. Joining us again from Lebanon is Nabil Costa, CEO of the Lebanese Society for Educational and Social Development. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nabil. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Nabil, back in August, you spoke with us on the ground in the explosion location, and you shared with us how terrible the situation is. Now, four months later, is there any progress? How are things there? Uh, of course, it is, uh, it is, I can say it is much better, of course, after August 4. And uh, I think the Lebanese, uh, we saw the good side as well of the Lebanese people who lost hope at that time. And we are seeing Lebanese people are helping each other as much as they can. And this is uh, very encouraging uh, for us, even with the little they have, they are sharing with other Lebanese who were hit uh, badly. People are hurting and uh, no one is still really taking responsibility for, for what happened. What's next and how long can people continue to go through this? Unfortunately, our government is not being responsible for this, is not acting responsible for this crisis. They are exposed very much. They are reaping what they sow especially on the corruption side of it. And they are leaving the people alone, if I might say, with their crisis of hope. However, I see the role of church is, is changing a lot. We thought that the church is only 10.30 to 11.30. Then we thought that church, it means live streaming. Mm. It is a new church, not necessary to be in the building. But after August uh, 4th, we are learning that the church is not only proclaiming the gospel, it's demonstrating the gospel. It's witnessing what we have. And this is encouraging us very much. The church grew since August 4. Till now, in those four months, the church grew tens of years. I can say this very gladly, and I thank God for that. Thanks so much, Nabil. That gives me goosebumps because you're saying that the church is actually working in action, especially during this hard season. There is a lot more on our website on how Canadians can help Nabil Costa from Lebanon. Again, thank you for your time today. You are definitely in our prayers. Thank you so much. God bless you. As headlines are filled with stories about COVID-19 here at home, many other regions around the world are struggling even more. Today, we have Gary Stagg from Open Doors Canada to help us understand what the media is not covering, especially regarding our Christian brothers and sisters. Gary, Yemen is in civil war and now COVID-19. Can you give us an update on exactly what is happening in Yemen today? Well, there's a... Of course, as you mentioned, the, the war is really devastated. It's a humanitarian crisis. I think it's probably the, the worst humanitarian crisis that we've seen in, in 100 years. And uh, with anything like that, 
uh, it intensifies, of course, the uh, situation for Christians that are living there. Um, things were, were pretty bad to begin with in, in the country for all citizens, not just Christians, but for all of them. Uh, now we have uh, COVID-19 thrown in on top of that, and it's just exasperated things for people so much. Yeah. One of the problems that we're seeing in Yemen, and not only not only in Yemen, but in other countries as well, uh, I think of countries like India and uh, Syria and other countries where, where uh, people are desperate for aid. And uh, what's, what's happening is that much of the aid that's going is being administered by local authorities and uh, religious groups and so on. Uh, Christians are already discriminated against, and now... This is a just a, another form of persecution, I would say, is uh, the withholding of aid to minority groups like Christians in, in the country. Right. As you, you just mentioned, Syria, a country suffering from the effects of the war and ISIS, and now, of course, facing COVID. How is the situation there, especially, I think, uh, around COVID and how they're coping with that amidst everything else that they've survived throughout the uh, past number of years? Yeah, for nine years, they've been wrecked with, um, with war. Mm. But imagine in a third world country, a country that's been ravaged by war for nine years, right. uh, it is having a devastating uh, effect on, on the people there. But, but one of the bright hopes that we see in these countries is that the church is really becoming more missional mm. in, in the middle of this. So they're they're looking at the needs all around them, and they're look, they see it as an opportunity to actually shine the light of Christ into their communities. And so in Syria, for instance, churches are being transformed into what we're calling um, villages of centers of hope, sorry. Um, they are um, they're actually transforming themselves into not just a, a meeting space for people to come and worship, but rather into centers that are really focused on meeting the felt needs of their communities and and we step in and help them to uh, have the resources to be able to help people that are in need and it doesn't matter what religion they are there it doesn't matter uh, who's coming to them they invite anybody that wants to come for help into their centers of hope they offer trauma counseling they offer food and medicine and whatever is needed they're responding so you know we can look at this as a, as a very and it is a very grim situation but uh, it's so encouraging for us to see what Christians are doing in some of these most difficult places to live as a Christian, yeah. the most dangerous places to live as a Christian. So it's encouraging at the same time. Just a reminder of many things that we have to pray for. Thank you again, Gary Stegg, Executive Director of Open Doors Canada. Thank you so much for your time today. Coming up, Carl Hetu of the Catholic Near East Welfare Association gives us an in-depth look at the situation in Ethiopia. Plus, Alison Alley from Compassion Canada discusses child poverty around the world. And Cheryl Weber of Crossroads Cares tells us how best we can help even when we feel helpless.
The United Nations reported nearly 2 million people in northern Ethiopia are in urgent need of food, fuel, medical, and other supplies as tensions flare between the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the Ethiopian federal government. Here to talk about the crisis in Ethiopia is Carl Hetu, the National Director of the Catholic Near East Welfare Association in Canada. Thank you so much, Carl, for being with us today. Let's start with the refugees in Ethiopia and the fact that there are two refugee crises happening right now as Ethiopians flee into neighboring Sudan and fighting in Tigray has come close to camps that are home to nearly 100,000 refugees from Eritrea. Some of these refugees are having to flee for a second time. Can you kind of paint a picture of what's going on with this complex conflict? Well, you know, the uh, Tigray uh, uh, authorities have been in power for 27 years in Ethiopia after the brutal war against the communists of the 1990s. And so uh, after 27 years, you can imagine level of corruptions uh, and et cetera. And so the uh, central government decided to make some great changes and the Tigray people basically lost uh, the edge. And many people that benefited from that corruptions are a bit upset that the direction Ethiopia is going with the new prime minister, Abiy, who's won the Nobel Peace Prize last year, if you recall. Uh, and from there, has done major reform to free prisoners, to give a great access to more democracy in the country. But this has unleashed as well a group of radical people from Tigray, but other, other kind of tribal people in other, the country to um, attempt to take control of Ethiopia. And so what's happening is the Tigray people have decided to attack a military base, a federal military-based Ethiopian, and that has got the government to react and send troops over there to reclaim their land and put the Tigray uh, governments in its place. And that, of course, has resulted, as you've said, of all those different people that are uh, now being displaced. There's also Amnesty International that has reported on um, the, the problematic of killing, mm. a systematic killing of innocent people. Right. Um, each side is, of course, accusing each other. And like you said, the Eritrean people, a camp, Mm -hmm. that have visited actually a few years ago um, where people already have nothing and all aid has been cut to there and me many, many people are afraid for their security. Yeah. Well, Ethiopia is considered one of the first regions in the world to adopt Orthodox Christianity. How is the faith of the Ethiopians keeping them strong through this very difficult season? You know, the Ethiopian people are great people. Eh? They, they've been a uh, uh, since the fourth century, they, they've been Christianity has been the majority of the people in this country. It's still the case today. A Muslim represents about uh, 35% of the population. And so, so the tradition of going through crisis is not new for Ethiopian. They've gone through all and uh, they are really resilient. And that's why our office uh, made of um, Ethiopian based in Addis Ababa has been working in all the different parts uh, of the country where there are troubles. Uh, you know, 79% of the people of Ethiopia live in rural areas. 49% mm. of the people don't have education at all, are illiterate. So our program really focuses into helping people to uh, get into the edge. But uh, from our office, uh, we have some uh, uh, very serious doubt that there'll be this capacity. And with the Tigray, we might see other region that might fall as well. So the world needs to mobilize to really help uh, the Ethiopian people to make sure there are no further crises in that country. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carl Hetu, for your work, and we will be praying for Ethiopia. Thank you so much for joining us today.
According to the World Food Program, the biggest victims of the pandemic are children. With the rate of acutely malnourished children on the rise, estimates are this year alone 6.7 million children could suffer from malnutrition. 80% of those in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Why? To find out, I spoke earlier with Alison Alley, President and CEO of Compassion Canada, a child development organization. You know, experts say that in only half a year, the coronavirus pandemic has wiped out decades of global development and everything from health to the economy. What does that mean for the work that Compassion uh, does and so many other NGOs across the world? So for us, it's meant a temporary shift in how we deliver our program to focus on the needs of health and stability right now. Uh, not dissimilar to a lot of NGOs, we're focusing on what's called water, sanitation, and hygiene. It's known as WASH in our sector. Uh, we're focusing on food and housing security, social and emotional and spiritual support for families who are navigating this crisis. And of course, child protection, because when you know stress and pressure increases in the home or parents are forced to make choices, kids are often at the brunt of that. Um, but I think it's important to understand that all of these efforts are a critical part of long-term sustainable development work. And a strength of our organization and other NGOs is an unwavering focus on empowering local leaders to contextualize their effort to meet local needs. And we're seeing the real strength of that right now uh, in our organization where the church, so we partner with frontline churches who were there before COVID, are best positioned uh, to meet the timely and unique needs of their neighbors, and they'll continue to serve their neighborhoods long after this pandemic. Now, with the World Bank noting that COVID-19 will likely cause the first increase in global poverty since 1998, is there hope, Allison? Yeah, I think the first thing that is important for us to do is get the word out and really keep the devastating and the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on the hearts and minds of Canadians. You know, um, we know, and I wouldn't want to rush past the fact that COVID has impacted every single Canadian uniquely, but it's really impacted every part of our life. And yet I've heard it described that while we're all in the same storm, we're not all in the same boat. So I, I think it is important, stay aware, stay engaged, keep learning about what's happening around the world. You know, give as you can to organizations that are on the front lines and are meeting uh, the urgent needs. And if you can't give personally, start a fundraiser or inspire others to give. But absolutely know that the church is at work, know that organizations are at work, and there's a variety of ways that people can get involved and be a part of the solution. Thanks again, Alison Alley, President and CEO of Compassion Canada. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Maggie. As we've seen so far, the pandemic is impacting many people right around the world. The virus is a big enough struggle, but there's also a major battle people are dealing with as they cope with food insecurity. Oxfam International reports that by the end of the year, 12,000 people per day could die from hunger linked to COVID-19. Cheryl Weber is the host of 100 Huntley Street and a representative of Crossroads Cares, the relief and development arm of our parent company, Crossroads Christian Communications. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. 
Uh, it's great to be with you and great to talk about this really important topic. So important. Now, one of the areas of the world where Crossroads Cares is active is in Uganda. Both of you, both you and I have uh, been to Uganda on behalf of Crossroads Cares. Uganda imposed a strict lockdown in the height of the pandemic. And while the COVID numbers are low in, com in comparison with other countries like Canada, Ugandans have experienced a lot during the season. Tell us about this. Yeah, and this is why Oxfam is warning that people could die because when you are in an impoverished area, generally you are a day laborer. So you go out every day, scrounge for enough food to try to eat that day. And when they lock people down, people were having to choose between breaking the lockdown and going to eat or staying home and starving to death. So risking COVID, starving to death. A lot of people said, I'd rather risk COVID. That's kind of at least, you know, starving to death is for sure. COVID is a maybe. Yeah, I mean, when you're in desperate measures on a good day, right, in Uganda. I mean, we've, again, have covered so many times how Ugandans struggle to survive. I can only imagine how they're impacted by COVID even now. How have you seen children specifically impacted by the pandemic, specifically when yeah. it comes to schooling? Well, 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 and you know that children are the most vulnerable anytime to food insecurity, and they can die very quickly. But with school, parents are trying to contend with the rising costs of food, the fact that they may not be working, and then they can't afford school uniforms, they can't afford food, and they have to choose. And a lot of times they're not going to choose education because they can't think ahead. They can only think, like, I got to keep people alive today. Right. And let's talk about the feeding programs, because as we look at food insecurity and what you had highlighted, that impacts how, how much food children are actually eating, especially at school. Yeah. Pre-pandemic, Crossroads Cares had a feeding program at school. So we do it at school to encourage that, that education to be a priority and to enable it to be a priority in a sense. Um, and so we, we do these school, this, this meal, and that sometimes was their only meal a day. And so now you look at it and, you know, they're, they're in this pandemic and parents can't afford the uniform to send their kid to school to get that one meal a day, which is, which is crazy. So we're wanting to do something about that. School numbers are down, less kids are showing up, and it's all because parents are just in this life and death struggle to survive right now. Okay, so how can we help? Yeah, absolutely. So we've set it up about $65. We'll send one child pay for, to school, pay for the uniform, pay for three months of lunches. So that would feed a child basically for three months. Um, so that's one thing you can do. You can also give towards sanitization. We sponsor a couple of schools. Also, since September, we've been able to refurbish nine wells, which impacts 7,000 people. And that, of course, if you can't have clean water to wash your hands, you can't fight COVID. And so all of those things you can contribute toward. Crossroads.ca slash cares or 1-800-265-3100. That money goes right to the ground. And uh, we're happy to come back on and tell you what happened. Yeah, absolutely. I know both of us have seen the faces of those in Uganda when they have clean water um, and just how revolutionary a well can be in a community. Thank you so much again. Cheryl Weber, host of 100 Huntley Street and representative of Crossroads Cares. Thanks so much. Our world right now is fraught with so much pain and upheaval, with faith groups under attack in North Korea, Pakistan, and Sudan, just to name a few. Houses of worship targeted like we've seen in the Armenian conflict and the global poverty rate increasing, COVID-19 wiping out by some estimates 30 years of development progress. The question is, where do we go from here? It's human nature to want to protect ourselves and our loved ones, but there's another way too. We can choose to love our neighbors no matter how near or how far as we love ourselves.
We hope you found some organizations in the program to contribute to. Their information is on our website. And we hope you enjoyed our brief trip to countries struggling but persevering in the face of great turmoil. Thank you all for watching. We couldn't do this program without our amazing team here at Context and the prayers and contributions of our donors who help us ensure Christian analysis on the news and current events. Go to our website, context.show, for further information. I'm Maggie John. Thanks for watching.